Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Robin Buller. Today we will be talking to Jessica Marglin about her new book, Across Legal Lines, Jews and Muslims in Modern Morocco. Jessica, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Jessica, I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I'm a professor of religion at the University of Southern California. Um, But I'm an historian by training, and I work on the history of North Africa and the Mediterranean in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, And I'm particularly interested in two sort of aspects of that North African and Mediterranean history. I'm interested in the experience of Jews and particularly their relationships with Muslims um, and Christians, uh, that is non-Jews. Uh, in the Mediterranean. And I'm also particularly interested in legal history. Um, And I think, you know, legal history, I I think some people, when they hear legal history, they sort of immediately start to snore. But um, uh, I think it could be deceiving because when when I say legal history, I don't actually mean that I'm interested in the history of law as it was produced by jurists. That is, you know, the history of law books and what they said. Um, rather, I'm interested in the history of law as it was used by ordinary people um, and legal institutions as places that normal people went to, just like people today, just like people today go to court, um, people go to notaries, people sue each other, um, right. people try to avoid getting sued, etc. Um, and so I, I'm interested in how the law kind of can show us about daily life. Um, I did my doctorate at Princeton University uh, in the Department of Near Eastern Studies, but um, I I have a a somewhat sort of uh, unusual trajectory in the sense that my my dissertation advisor, Mark Cohen, who is absolutely a wonderful advisor, is not actually a specialist of Jews in modern North Africa. He's a specialist of the Geniza, which is a repository of documents from the medieval Jewish community in Cairo and elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, I think it, I, mean, I, I say that in part because still in America, the history of Jews in modern North Africa or actually elsewhere in the modern Middle East remains a kind of um, small, somewhat marginal field in terms of the numbers of people doing it, although that's changing rapidly. There are more and more um, doctoral students and uh, um, young professors who are working on this. But in any case, it's, um, uh, it's sort of, I think, uh, a testimony to the power of professors as mentors that I even got interested in this because if it weren't for Susan Miller, who was a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate, I never would have even thought to study the history of Jews in Morocco. I mean, I think I, when I came to college, I li- literally didn't even really know 
that there was much of a Jewish community in Morocco. It was not something I'd ever learned about, certainly not in high school, um, not in the course of my sort of, you know, not very good, but nonetheless existent Jewish education. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, you know, it, w- it was really one of those sort of fortunate um, accidents that I, I met Susan Miller, I studied with her, um, she encouraged me to go to Morocco and to do some research there, and then I sort of fell in love with the topic, and and so that's why I ended up pursuing it in graduate school, um, and that's how I eventually got to this book. Great, um, that's fascinating. So, so you sort of you started to talk about this, and how did you come specifically to write um, to write on this specific topic, to write across legal lines, and how did you go about researching it? Right, right. Um, well, I, I think also fairly early on, even when I was an undergraduate, I got interested in legal sources. Um, that is various sort of uh, documents written for a legal purpose. Originally, I, w- I got interested in a genre of documents, which in Hebrew are called tishuvot. It's usually uh, translated as responsa. That is, these are formal um, answers to legal questions, usually written by rabbis or other sort of educated people in Jewish law. And so if anybody, you know, any ordinary person might have a question about law, you know, am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do that? What if this happens? You know, what does Jewish law say? They might write a rabbi or ask a rabbi, and then the rabbi would write them a formal answer called a teshuva. Um, and uh, and I these are these are sources that have been used for a long time um, by scholars not only of modern North Africa but of Jews really all over the world and particularly in the in the Middle East um, as a source for social history because often these questions and, and particularly uh, these questions and answers have a lot of sort of detail about everyday life. Um, and I had used these myself as a source for social history uh, a little bit, you know, in, in the course of sort of undergraduate seminars. And then I sort of realized that they were being used in a con- they were sort of being used a little bit out of context, that people were interested in them as documents to mine for social history. But in fact, they were documents that had been written for a legal purpose and that nobody had yet written about the legal world in which these, from which these documents came. And so I got interested in writing legal history from that perspective. Um, and, you know, when I started out the, when I started out my research for my, which for my dissertation, this book comes out of my dissertation. Um, when I was at Princeton and I was sort of starting very early stages to look for what I might be interested in. And I honestly didn't know what sorts of sources I would end up using or end up finding um, beyond, you know, I knew that there were these, responsa, that there there was this sort of genre of legal literature, much of which had been published. Um, But I didn't know if I was going to find, say, court records, uh, which ended up being very important. Well, not exactly court records, but document, archival documents from courts. I didn't know if I would find those. Um, I didn't know if they even existed. I didn't know what sort of things I was going to be looking for. Um, And I think that that's, you know, often the case with a dissertation, especially with a dissertation on topic like the history of North African Jews, which hasn't been extensively written about already, right? I mean, if you're doing a dissertation on the French Revolution, say, um, 
it's going to be hard to find a cache of sources that people haven't already used because right. there have been so many you know, <laughs> endless books and articles about the French Revolution. So it's a, it's a different challenge there. But in the history of Moroccan Jews, there are still many, many, many um, types of sources that just really haven't even been looked at or, or have only been looked at briefly. So right. I started out, you know, I started out knowing that there was this response to literature and being interested in it. Um, but I also just sort of talked to people about my research and told them what I was interested in and got advice about where I might find sources that would be interesting. And I remember one of a very early conversation I had with Daniel Schrader, um, who's an historian of Jews in 19th century Morocco at the University of Minnesota, and who has also just been an incredibly generous and wonderful mentor. And Daniel, I told him about my research, I told him I was interested in law, and he said, oh, you know, there's this man in Brussels named Paul Dahan, Dahan in in the in an English pronunciation, um, who is himself a Moroccan Jew and who has a really wonderful collection of Judaica, but also of of old documents. And you might you know go to his house and and see if he'll let you you know look at some of his things. And so I the next time I was in Europe, I wrote to Paul Dahan and I said, you know. I'm a graduate student. Daniel Schrader recommended that I get in touch with you. Would it be okay if I came to your house? And he is a, another incredibly generous and wonderful person who said, absolutely, you know, come, I, no problem. And um, I show up at his house. Well, actually, it, he, has, he has a house and then next door he has another building which he's turned into a museum of the history of Moroccan Jews. Wow. Um, and he puts on these really beautiful exhibits, uh, mostly with his Judaica, but then upstairs on the, on the sort of second to top floor of this museum, he has a kind of library full of rare books and also manuscripts and archives that he's collected from various dealers and uh, bookstores in Morocco. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, well, disorganized would be to put it mildly. There's like no catalog. And, uh, you know, many of these documents, Paul Dahan himself can't even read because they're in these very kind of obscure scripts. Some of them are in Arabic. Um, and, uh, but he's very happy, you know, he, he cares about them and he recognizes that they're valuable and important. And he's also very happy to share them with scholars who have the tools to read them. And I remember sitting there and sort of realizing that he had a number of documents from Islamic courts that Jews, that, that concerned Jews and um, that were in Arabic. And I thought, oh, this is, this is very interesting. Um, this is, this is sort of what I was hoping to find, but didn't know if I would find. Um, and, uh, you know, I should, I should maybe say something about the sort of state of archive archives in Morocco to explain why I, I wasn't sure that I was going to find these sorts of things. Um, uh, courts in Morocco, law courts in Morocco, uh, Jewish or Muslim, did not keep systematic archives before the protectorate, before the French took over in 1912. Uh. They did produce written documentation of their, of their work, but they were kept by the individuals concerned, either by the judge himself or by the notary's public who were the scribes or by the people involved, by the, you know, ordinary Jews and Muslims who were using these institutions. So there's no kind of state archive in Morocco that has a large collection of these kinds of legal records. And however, what I realized slowly over the course of doing my research is that a lot of these sorts of legal records actually are in 
archives scattered all over the world because when Jews left Morocco, they either left them behind to be found by dealers or they took them with them and then either donated them to libraries or sometimes sold them to dealers abroad. Um, and that's how somebody like Paul Dahon amassed this collection um, because all of these Jews who had left Morocco no longer wanted their documents and so they let them kind of enter the marketplace of, uh, of Judaica, you could say. Um, and so that, that was sort of my first encounter with the kinds of documents that ended up being very important for much of the book. And eventually I ended up, again, kind of stumbling across the collection of the Asarafs, um, who is the Asaraf family is sort of at the center of the book. Um, it's not only about the Asaraf family, but I use, I use them as a kind of narrative thread to tie the different parts of the book together. They were this very wealthy um, family in Fez, but they're mostly interesting because they happened to leave their legal archive more or less intact, and it happened to come into the hands of another incredibly generous collector named Yosef Tobi, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Haifa and who lives in Jerusalem and who also opened his home to me um, and you know, allowed me to sort of sit in his living room for a couple months during, over the course of which I read the contents of this archive um, and took notes on it. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that's sort of the, the more or less the story. <laughs> it's really like a global research narrative. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I knew, I mean, I knew that I was going to, when I set out to do this work, I knew I was going to need to do research in Morocco because I knew that the state archives there, which they don't have legal records, but they have a lot of official correspondence um, amongst different government officials and also private individuals writing to the government. So, um, you know, I knew that the, the Moroccan state archives would be important for me. And indeed, you know, they ended up being a very big part of the research for the book as well. But this whole aspect of sort of private collections um, and then also, you know, collections that ended up in public archives, like in the University of Leiden, they have a, a really amazing collection um, at Yale University, at various archives and libraries in Israel. Um, but these two got there by these sort of random, uh, somewhat you know, unexpected paths where Moroccan Jews left their documents behind and then they ended up in the hands of dealers um, or they brought them with them and then ended up donating them, particularly in Israel, to various institutions. And that, yes, that was completely unexpected and, um, and very fortuitous, actually. Yeah, it's really, it's an amazing story of sort of detective work. Um, I love it. <laughs> right. Yes. And that was fun. That, that ended up being a very fun part of doing the research for this book was that I felt like I was kind of hunting around for these documents um, everywhere I went. And I, I, you know, I think when I started my research, I didn't expect, um, I didn't expect this detective work to, I mean, this sort of detective aspect of it to be so important. But as I sort of progressed in the research, I realized how important it was uh, just to talk to people about what I was doing and to tell them what I was interested in. And then unexpectedly, often people would have these really great ideas about where I might find sources and where I might find, you know, um, really incredible caches, caches of documents. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that, that turned out to be a kind of fun 
unexpected aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, I can I can imagine. So I wonder if now maybe we could give our listeners a quick sort of Moroccan history lesson. Uh, could mm-hmm. you could you give us an outline of the legal system that you're dealing with in this book? This the legal system of nineteenth century Morocco. Yes, absolutely. So my uh, my book covers mainly the mid nineteenth century to about the nineteen twenties, and. But the legal system had, there was something of a rupture when Morocco was colonized in 1912 by the French. So first I'll, I'll start with the, the, the pre-colonial legal system. Um, first of all, I should just say that Morocco was an independent state. It was never part of the Ottoman Empire. It had its own sultan who had control over more or less, uh, much, not all, but much of the territory that today is Morocco. Um, and the legal system in 19th century Morocco was sort of radically pluralist in the sense that there were a large, a fairly large number of different institutions that coexisted and to some extent overlapped in their jurisdictions. And so often the way, the, the way I describe it in the book is sort of from different levels, right? There was the local level and that is the kind of courts that operated in the city uh, or in, even in the countryside in rural areas. For Jews, there were Jewish courts that existed that applied Jewish law because in the Islamic world, certainly in the pre-modern Islamic world, Jews were given a great deal of legal autonomy. They were allowed to sort of run their own courts um, and apply their own laws as part of their status as protected non-Muslim monotheists, which is in Arabic called binni. Um, so they had Jewish courts that they could go to. But technically, these Jewish courts only had jurisdiction over intra-Jewish affairs, that is, matters concerning only Jews. Mm. And anything concerning a Muslim was under the jurisdiction of the Sharia court, that is, the the Islamic law court, um, which applied Islamic law, but which was also a court for Jews, particularly because Jews ended up having a lot of um, legal uh, affairs with Muslims, and which I talk about rather extensively in the book. Uh, and then at the um, at the local level, you also had sort of secular is really the wrong word, but um, non-religious, maybe a better word, um, <laughs> kinds of legal fora. So you had like the governor of the city, who was appointed by the sultan himself, usually, or at least. Uh, that was theoretically the case. Um, the, the governor of the city often had a judicial role, and many many disputes, not only with Muslim, not only concerning Muslims, but also concerning Jews, would end up being adjudicated by the governor. And unfortunately, that's not something I was really able to talk about at length in the book because there are just I just could not find any written, written records, and as far as I can tell, there aren't any. Um, so this is a this is a, a fairly difficult aspect of the legal system to get at, and um, but it but it's important nonetheless for the for sort of the picture on the whole. And then at the national level, you had what is sort of like a court of appeal, and um, basically a high court run by the sultan himself, where if you know if something was being processed at the local level and the individuals involved weren't happy with how it was going, they could. They could um, appeal to the sultan for a kind of redress and um, 
So the sultan was himself also a very important part of the legal system and spent, you know, multiple days every week sort of adjudicating these cases that were appealed to him directly. Um, And in that sense, the legal system was, uh, well, obviously very tied up with the political structure of Morocco, but was also in some ways very personal, right? And the fact that the sultan wasn't just a distant monarch, but also actually took an interest in and had a role, played a role in the legal affairs of ordinary people, I think is very important. And then finally, there was a system of courts that operated at the na- at the sort of international level, particularly in the 19th century, starting in the late 18th century, but really getting going in the 19th century. These were courts that were run by foreign uh, foreign states that had consular representation in Morocco. And here I have to explain a little bit about a sort of um, legal status that is important for the 19th century, but a little bit obscure today, called extraterritoriality. And there was a there were a number of treaties signed not only between Morocco and other and sort of Western states, usually European and um, North American and some South American states. Uh, these treaties allowed Europeans and Americans when they were in Morocco or actually elsewhere in the Islamic world, because such treaties were also signed with Tunisia and with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, these treaties allowed these foreign individuals to kind of remain in a legal bubble when they were in Morocco. So instead of, so if you were a Frenchman, say, in Morocco, instead of being under the jurisdiction of the Sultan and the Sultan's laws, you were for many cases under the jurisdiction of the French consul, of your own consular representative. And this consul also acted as a judge of a consular court um, and was in charge of the sort of legal affairs of French people in Morocco. However, these consular courts, the French consular court, the American consular court, the British consular court, they didn't only concern themselves with, quote unquote, you know, or uh, native Frenchmen or Native American, you know, people who had actually come from France and gone to Morocco, because there was a whole system of consular protection that sort of had a boom in the 19th century, by which these consulates would also extend protection and their jurisdiction to local Moroccans. That is, a Moroccan Jew or Muslim could get French protection, and then he wouldn't necessarily become a French citizen, but he would be under the jurisdiction of these French consular courts, just like French citizens. Um, And so a lot of Moroccans, and particularly a lot of Moroccan Jews, acquired this sort of protection in the late 19th century, and this gave them access to a whole other series of courts um, that became increasingly important over the course of the 19th century. So uh, the members of the Asaraf family, particularly Shalom Asaraf, who was sort of the patriarch and kind of made the family fortune, um, he acquired American protection sometime before the 1870s, which allowed him access to American consular courts and also the intervention of the American consul on his behalf. Um, and this became, I think, particularly important in terms of understanding the expansion of legal pluralism in the 19th century in Morocco and particularly the place of Jews. Okay, so it's really a, a complex and multi tiered multinational even system. Um, yes, right, right. Which I guess is, in, you know, in some ways reflected in the archival and the source base for the for the project, right? I mean, it, you were saying that the, the source base is very kind of international. That's true. And I think it's also, uh, it's also partially because 
the the very nature of the court system was international. So one thing that I didn't mention, but in order to get at the functioning of these consular courts, I went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archives for the various countries that were running the consular courts. So I spent time in France and in England and in America, a little bit in Spain, um, et cetera, to get, to get at the history of these consular courts. Oh, okay. Um, and so you also talked about the separate Jewish and Islamic court systems. And a big part of your argument is about those boundaries being being quite blurry. Um, right. I wonder if you might expand on that. Sure, right. So one of the things that I found as I was doing my research was that the kind of theoretical distinctions between these different types of courts that I've just laid out for you um, often broke down when you actually read the archives of these courts, that when you actually read the documentation that these courts produced. Um, in particular, because Jews, even though you know they were supposed to stay within the system of Jewish courts for all intra-Jewish affairs, that is for matters only concerning Jews, they often elected to go to the Sharia court. And because for various reasons. Maybe they thought the Sharia court would give them a better deal. Maybe there was a difference between the laws applied by Jewish courts and by Sharia courts, and they decided that the Sharia court would be more favorable to them in this particular instance. And sometimes they actually went to both. They used both systems simultaneously. And this this was something that I was actually very surprised, but also very pleased to find, um, precisely because it showed the porousness of these legal boundaries. And um, uh, I, one one sort of genre of document that showed up in a bunch of my uh, in, in a bunch of different places are what I call doubly notarized documents. Hmm. So in order for a legal document to be valid in court, it had to be notarized by notaries public. Notaries public is kind of a translation because that you didn't exactly have the concept of notaries public in Morocco. But Jew, Jewish courts had sort of appointed scribes who were considered valid witnesses for Jewish documents. And the same sort of model applied in Islamic law. You had um, Muslim scribes who were considered valid witnesses. And so the documents produced by both these Muslim notaries public and Jewish notaries public were legal in court. Now, normally, if you had something that you wanted to document legally, like let's say you sold your house, or you bought a house and you wanted a legal record of this, and you would just go to one, one or the other. You would Muslims often went to Muslim uh, notaries public. Jews went to Jewish notaries public, for the most part. However, Jews also often went to Muslim notaries public. Muslims also went to Jewish notaries public, and sometimes you would go to both. Sometimes a Jew, for instance, would buy a house and would get the sale of the house recorded by both Jewish notaries public and by Muslim notaries public, often on the very same piece of paper. So in a single piece of paper, you have on one side a legal document in Arabic and the other side a legal document in Hebrew. And this is not a translation, right? The, the, the Muslims are not translating the, the Hebrew legal document or vice versa. They're both recording the same acts. They're recording the same sale of the same house for the same amount of money and involving the same people, mm. but they're recording it on according to their respective legal systems. Um, and that I found uh, really sort of um, representative of the ways in which people were moving between these different 
legal orders between Jewish courts and Muslim courts and the ways in which the two systems really actually worked together um, rather than, say, competing or um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, trying to cancel each other out. Um, and I think that that in some ways was, for me, one of the most important things that I learned from my research that, um, you know, we think of these legal orders as separate and, and, it, and especially in competition, certainly from the point of view of Jews, um, because a lot of rabbis wrote very stridently against Jews using non-Jewish courts. But those kinds of uh, uh, invectives by rabbis need to be understood in their particular historical context. And I think they have been sort of applied very broadly in a way that isn't appropriate for the, for the, the reality of the way Jews and Muslims used these legal institutions. So uh, where does, how does Morocco's central government then fit into, fit into your argument? Mm, right. So uh, a whole sort of aspect of my book and, and one chapter in particular has to do with particularly how the Sultan kind of in, in, uh, intervened in legal matters. Yes. Um, and, you know, as I said, the Sultan kind of ran this court and Jews, of course, like Muslims also appealed to the Sultan, um, especially for cases that couldn't be resolved at the local level. So like the Asarafs, um, to go back to the Asaraf family, the Asarafs were big merchants, but they sold most of their goods on credit. So they were they ended up also being money lenders at the same time as they were merchants. And, and they ended up having a lot of people owing them money who weren't able to pay them back. And they kept trying to get paid back, you know, through various methods. Sometimes they would sue people in court, but sometimes they would uh, sue somebody in court and that wasn't enough because either the person proved to be bankrupt or the person who was who's supposed to pay them back the money couldn't be found. Um, and sometimes when these sorts of situations arose, they would write to the central government asking the sultan to intervene. Um, and then the sultan would write to the local governor and say, hey, you know, here are these Jews, Shalom Asaraf or Sanyakov Asaraf, and they're owed this money. Can you make sure that the debtors are found and are forced to pay? Um, and so you have this sort of extensive correspondence between Jews and their sultan. Now, did the sultan himself actually deal with these letters? I mean, perhaps not, right? We, we have to imagine there was a sort of small, um, uh, you know, an office of scribes and clerks and ministers who were, whose job it was to help the sultan process all of these complaints. But nonetheless, um, the sultan was sort of symbolically in charge of this. And I think that this is important also for understanding the kind of direct relationship that existed, not only between Muslims and the sultan, which is kind of what we imagine, but also between non-Muslims, right? That the, the sultan was very much a sultan for everybody. Um, and then I also think that this, this documentation says something about the changing role and the changing place of Jews in Moroccan society in the 19th century. Because increasingly in the 19th century, Jews were the object of a lot of attention from um, both Jews and Christians in Europe and even in the Americas. Um, in a place like Morocco, Jews were considered a kind of symbol of Islamic tyranny and um, sort of the problem with the quote-unquote backwards Muslim world. Um, this is not... I, just to be clear, this is not, I think, uh, actually the representation of reality, but this was how 
this was how these um, Jews in Europe and non-Jews sort of saw the situation, right? right. They saw Moroccan Jews as very oppressed and as sort of victims mm. of basically Islam in some ways. Um, and a, there were a lot of efforts to intervene on behalf of Moroccan Jews. So increasingly, um, both consular officials, diplomats themselves who were stationed in Morocco, and international Jewish organizations like the Alliance Israelite Universelle based in Paris, were um, involved in advocating on behalf of Moroccan Jews. And it became very um, sort of... Uh, it became increasingly attractive for Jews in Morocco to write to these international actors, either the, well, usually both the consuls and the alliance and other kinds of international Jewish organizations, whenever they had something, whenever they had a problem. So let's say, you know, if a Jew was murdered um, while out uh, peddling wares, Jews were, were very often um, sort of traveling salesmen in Morocco and they would go very long distances in the countryside and they would sell things to small rural Muslims, Muslim communities. And, and often they would be the victims of sort of bandits along the road. Not the only victims, Muslims were always also victims of this kind of robbery, um, but Jews were often the victims. And when they were victims of this kind of um, crime, either robbery or murder, they, they wanted to get compensated, right? I, if it was uh, robbery and the and the Jew who was robbed survived, then he would want to be compensated for his stolen goods. Mm. Um, and if it was murder, then the the relatives of the victim, his wife or his children or his brothers or his parents, would try to get compensated for the murder. But this was not always very simple, um, often because the, the, the crime itself wasn't clear, it wasn't clear where it happened, it wasn't clear who was responsible, etc., um, and one of the things that I found was that, you know, if you just read the um, archives of the Alliance, say, or the archives of the foreign consuls, you imagine that the Jews in Morocco had no other recourse when this sort of thing happened, when they became the victims of a crime like this. Um, and that, you know, the, the sultan was totally either, you know, unwilling or unable to do anything about it. Now, when you actually look at the archival records of this sort of high court of appeal and of the sultan's involvement in the Moroccan judicial system, you see that actually, no, the, the sultan spent a lot of time trying to do something about these crimes. He wasn't always successful, but that was less because he was some anti-Semitic, you know, horrible anti-Jewish person, mm -hmm. but rather because um, because he, the, the Moroccan state was very weak in the 19th century. And, you know, there wasn't often there wasn't much that the state officials could do about anything like this. Um, and there was, you know, there was a lot of crime uh, that went unpunished, both when it was targeted, uh, uh, both when it targeted Jews and when it targeted Muslims. Nonetheless, the fact that Jews had access to these international actors when they were the victims of crime became increasingly important. Um, and it became especially important when Jews were convinced that they were, that they were suffering some sort of anti-Jewish um, bias. So like uh, there was, you know, there are some very famous incidents, um, uh, one in particular from 1863 to 1864, when a, actually a Spanish um, official who was working in Morocco at the time was poisoned and four Jews were accused of poisoning him. 
Um, and two of them were executed. And after the, t- the first two were executed, the Jewish community kind of mobilized and tried to save the lives of the other two accused because they believed that, you know, this was all a big sham and that the Jews actually weren't responsible. You know, there, there hadn't been due diligence done in the, in the trial, et cetera, et cetera. And they mobilized. And the, you know, the, the sort of the story that's usually told about this incident is that, um, you know, there was a, the, the Moroccan government was very um, uh, sort of biased against Jews. When the Jews were accused, they just immediately executed them. And then they refused to listen to reason when a bunch of consuls um, intervened and when, you know, when the, when these various Jewish international organizations were mobilized to come help. And finally, Moses Montefiore, um, a very famous Jewish philanthropist from England came to Morocco personally to ask the Sultan to have mercy on these Jews. And he's the one who saved these la- the lives of these last two Jews. The archival record is much more complicated. First of all, because you realize that actually it wasn't the Moroccan Sultan who wanted to execute the Jews, but rather the Spanish consulate, um, who was oh. not surprisingly a little bit anti-Semitic and who were very keen on, on punishing the Jews for, the, for what they thought was uh, a Jewish crime. Um, and secondly, what, what sort of gets lost in the story about this incident that's often told is that um, the Jews on, you know, on site, the Jews in the town in, of Safi where the murder was, took place and where the trials were taking place did not only write to foreign officials. They didn't only write to um, Jewish organizations in Paris and London, but they first actually went to their local officials, the, the governor of the city, and they wrote to the sultan, etc., trying to get them to free the Jews that were accused. And these local officials said, our hands are tied. It's the Spanish consulate that's insisting. And it was only then that they wrote abroad, that the local Jews wrote abroad to try to get intervention. And when Moses Montefiore finally decided to intervene, he stopped first in Spain and went to Madrid and asked the queen of of Spain to to sort of uh, pardon these the these Jews who were accused and who had not yet been executed, and she was the one who allowed them to be freed, not the Sultan himself. Then Moses Montefiore went on and met with the Sultan and asked him to essentially declare equality between Jews and Muslims. And this is a very interesting sort of episode because the Sultan did not exactly declare equality. He wrote what's called a the here, a sort of a firman, a, a, a royal order um, about Jews, which in some ways affirmed the uh, traditional place of Jews in Moroccan society, that they were the protégés of the, the sultan, that they were protected as vimis, as non-Muslim monotheists, that they had the right to practice their religion, they had the right to their own courts, to their own synagogues, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that they were protected as Jews. Um, he framed this in very modern language, which is sort of interesting because in some ways he was writing it for a, a Western audience, right? He was writing it for Montefiore and the other people who were going to be reading it abroad. Um, but in it, so it's a kind of masterpiece of the meeting between uh, a sort of more traditional Islamic approach to minorities and a, a, a kind of European one. Um, and so that, that gives you a little sense of the, importance of the increasing importance of foreign actors in 
Morocco, but also in the Moroccan legal system. And although, as I've tried to show, I think that the way in which we've understood the role of foreign actors has really been distorted um, by the historiography. And, and that's one of the things that I try to show in the book um, is a kind of different way to understand that history. Right. And so it seems like these foreign institutions and the Jews in Morocco are both really actively engaged with this, this system. Um, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so what just, you know, on the topic of foreign intervention, uh, how did things change um, with the advent of the colonization of Morocco? Mm, right, right. Um, this is something I talk about somewhat briefly in the book. I mean, I think one could easily write a whole book just about the Jews and the legal system in Morocco under French rule um, during the French protectorate, which lasted from 1912 until 1956. Mm. Um, and in my book, I really just sort of start to to look at this question and start to answer the question. But essentially what happened is um, this. The French arrived in Morocco um, and all of the wonderful kind of porousness and the sort of moving across legal lines and the the sort of sort of vague jurisdictional boundaries that I've been describing, um, which in many ways empowered Jews in the pre-colonial period and allowed them to sort of work the system very effectively and allowed them to be successful um, in the in the judicial system. When the French arrived in 1912, they saw all of this and they thought, "Oh, this is terrible chaos. This is you know this is this is this is not at all the kind of state that we want, and this is the opposite of the sort of." good social order and centralization and rational organization of government that we think is the is the right way to organize a state. And so they went about trying to end all of this poorness, porousness. And, and when they reformed the Moroccan judi- judicial system, the thing that was most important to them was to establish clear boundaries between the different kinds of courts that existed. Um, so they preserved the, uh, they preserved the Moroccan, they, 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 well, they, they said that they were preserving the Moroccan legal system, but just reforming it. In fact, they actually changed it rather, rather dramatically. So, for instance, they kept uh, Jewish courts, but in, but they severely reduced their jurisdiction. So, whereas before Jewish courts had had jurisdiction over certainly all civil matters and even some criminal matters, um, once the French reorganized things, they only had jurisdiction over matters of personal status, basically family law, marriage, divorce succession, inheritance, et cetera. And they did the same thing for Sharia courts. So Sharia courts no longer handled debts or mortgages or sales or leases or things like that. They came to only have jurisdiction over personal status, over family law. And the French kind of empowered, they increased the power of these sort of um, local administrative courts, right, that I'd mentioned earlier, that the the governor of a city would also have power as a judge. So under the French, those courts actually became much more important because now they had jurisdiction over all um, commercial and civil matters that were not family law. So um, and and the French also felt that it was very important that whereas in the pre-colonial period, Jews would sometimes go to Sharia court for intra-Jewish matters and Muslims would sometimes go to a Jewish court, you know, that all of that sort of thing should stop after the, now that we were reorganizing things. Um, and they wanted to make it clear that Jews were, you know, 
only Jews would go to Jewish courts and only Muslims would go to Sharia courts. And then these sort of quote unquote secular courts, these administrative courts would be for Jews and Muslims. Um, and at first it didn't work out too well because neither Jews nor Muslims um, really took to this new organization. So in the early years of these reforms, which mostly happened after the First World War, so in the sort of early decades of the 19, the early years of the 1920s, Jews continued to go to Muslim courts, Muslims continued to go to Jewish courts. Um, and sometimes they, you know, they would write the, sometimes the French officials would write amongst themselves to say, what's going on? You know, wait, <laughs> this isn't working. How do we, how do we put order into the system? Um, and, you know, sometimes they would, they would sort of come down hard and then sometimes they would just say, look, there's nothing we can do. Jews and Muslims are going to do the things that they've done for decades and decades, maybe even centuries. Um, and we just have to sort of be patient. But eventually, uh, for the most part, uh, French officials did manage to kind of harden the boundaries between the different jurisdictions in Morocco. Um, and, I, and this had what I think was a somewhat deleterious effect on Jews, um, in large part because Jews had really benefited from the porousness of jurisdictional boundaries in the pre-colonial period. They had um, used the fact that they could go to all of these different courts to their advantages, to their advantage. Um, and when they found themselves unable to move amongst different kinds of legal orders, and they were sort of impoverished judicially. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, there was, there's a sort of more technical effect that happened, which, was, um, which has to do with the nature of evidence in the different kinds of courts that existed in Morocco. Um, so in the Sharia courts in Morocco, evidence was usually, was the, the, the main kind of evidence used was documentary evidence, written documents signed by Muslim notaries public. Um, but and Jews had access to these documents just like Muslims. Any anybody, Jew or Muslim, could go to a Muslim notary public and say, "Hey, I'd like you to um, write up a contract for a loan, or for a sale of a house, or for a lease, or something like that." And the Muslim notary public would do it, and it was essentially the same contract for a Jew or a Muslim. In the administrative courts, however, that were run by the governors. Um, documentary evidence was less prevalent and oral testimony was more common than in Sharia courts. And it, when it came to oral testimony, Jews were at something of a disadvantage because according to Islamic law, Jews are not allowed to give oral testimony against Muslims. Oh. In the pre-colonial period, this had less of an effect because Jews could choose to go to the Sharia court where oral testimony was fairly rare and they could rely on this documentary evidence to which they had more or less equal access. But in the, in the colonial period, Jews were no longer allowed to take most civil court cases to the Sharia courts and they were forced to go to these administrative courts run by governors who, wouldn't, who didn't allow them to testify. And Jews were, you know, uh, understandably rather upset about the situation and wrote letters to the French administrators saying, this is not right, this is not fair, we, you know, we can't testify, we shouldn't be in these courts, we're not the equals of Muslims, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the French, even though they supposedly were very interested in instilling equality and in helping Jews, et cetera, et cetera, basically said, we can't do anything about it and refused to change the system. Um, and it was only in, uh, under Moroccan independence that major legal reforms were instituted once again. So in some ways, even though the French kind of came to Morocco championing 
the cause of Jews and declaring themselves kind of the liberators of Jews, uh, of Moroccan Jews. In fact, the, at least from the legal point of view, um, in many ways, they made Jews worse off than they were in the pre-colonial period. Wow. So, so with those changes in mind, how, how do you see this book fitting into broader you know, discussions, debates, or assumptions uh, in Jewish history? Right. Um, well, I think there, there's sort of a couple ways in which I, I try to talk about broader questions in Jewish sure. history. I mean, one is just the, this, this question of how we use Jewish legal history to write the history of Jews. Um, most of the work on Jewish legal history has tended to emphasize the ways in which Jews were separate and somewhat even cloistered from non-Jews. And they've, they've seen law as a way in which Jews managed to um, uh, sort of uh, maintain their isolationism and maintain uh, these sort of autonomy and even, to, you know, in a sort of extreme formulation, their own state within the state. And what I've tried, what I've tried to show in this book is that actually I think law functioned in the opposite way. I think law was not a way in which Jews isolated themselves from non-Jews, but rather a way in which they connected to non-Jews, in which they entered non-Jewish society, in which they were able to use non-Jewish institutions, and they were able to come into contact with non-Jews, specifically through these legal institutions. Um, and then when it comes to uh, sort of Jewish debates on modernization and modernity and how Jews experience modernity, I think there's a kind of teleology of modernization that, that comes from a European framework in which modernity means emancipation and Jews become the equals of non-Jews. And then, you know, that is a kind of good, uh, is that's a kind of, well, often perceived as a very good development. Um, and that becomes the kind of defining feature for Jewish history in the 19th century. And I think um, the experience of Jews under French colonial rule shows that in colonial situations, um, modernization, first of all, often didn't come along with emancipation um, and, and also created these very new and often um, even less equal situations for Jews. So even when the discourse was one in which you know, the French were trying to help Jews, the reality was often such that Jews were not better off um, under, under this supposedly more modern framework. Um, and so in that sense, I think sort of, uh, you know, studying the Jews of Morocco makes us rethink the assumptions that we have about modernity and Judaism um, and, and the Jewish experience in the modern period, which I think come from a kind of European uh, context. Well, Jessica, we've taken up a lot of your time. <laughs> but before we hang up, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and where you are now. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so as we speak, I'm actually sitting in my office in Paris at the Institut d'études avancées, where I have a fellowship to work on my next book, which is a history of a legal case from the late 19th century involving a very rich Tunisian Jew named Nisim Shamama who died in Italy, leaving this vast fortune, but no direct heirs. And I'm interested in the sort of legal history of this case, in large part because somewhat like my first book, it, it sort of brings together a number of different legal systems, Tunisian law, Jewish law, Italian law, international law, and, and it also does it across the Mediterranean. And I'm interested in sort of seeing how some of the sort of themes of legal pluralism that I worked on in Morocco play out in a broader Mediterranean context.
That sounds like a really fascinating project. I look forward to reading the book. Maybe we can have you back. (laughs) All right, Jessica. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. I really enjoyed our discussion. Take care. Thank you, Robin. It's been such a pleasure. All the best.